Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Today we're going to read from uh, Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 12. The reason I want to read this passage is because uh, I believe it summarizes well for us the biblical approach to generosity from beginning to end. So Deuteronomy 26, starting in verse 1. Law of Moses here. The word of the Lord says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, As a special possession, and you have conquered it and settled there, put some of the first fruits, first produce from each crop you harvest into a basket, bring it to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, what would later be the temple. Go to the priest in charge at the time and say to him, With this gift I acknowledge to the Lord your God that I have entered the land he swore to our ancestors he would give us. The priest will then take the basket from your hand and set it before the altar of the Lord your God. You must then say, in the presence of the Lord your God, my ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived, few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and he heard our cries and saw our hardship, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and powerful arm, with overwhelming terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, and he gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And now, O Lord... I have brought you the first portion of the harvest you've given me from the ground. Then place the produce before the Lord your God and bow to the ground and worship before him. Afterward, you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Remember to include the Levites and the foreigners living among you in the celebration. Every third year, you must offer a special tithe of your crops. And this year... Of the special tithe, you must give your tithes to the Levites, foreigners, orphans, and widows so that they will have enough to eat in your towns. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Now, if uh, you couldn't tell today, we are starting a two-week series on money, generosity, and who loves talking about money in church? Yay. Who brought some money to church today? <laughs> no, I'm, just kid- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, so fun fact for you. Fun fact. Scholars actually say that approximately 25% of Jesus' teachings were on the topic of money. So I'm only asking for two weeks. Come on. Everybody loves Jesus. Tyler, we love Jesus. Won't you be more like Jesus, Tyler? Won't you preach more like Jesus, Tyler? You talk too much about politics. Okay. You want a more Christ-like preacher? Let's do the math. 52 weeks, 25%. Here's what I'll do. Next year, I'll start the year off with a 13-week series on your money. We'll take the politics. Never mind. Okay, yeah. So 
here's, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. If Jesus were here, if Jesus were here and he were talking to you about money, uh, I believe one of the first things he would say to you is this. He would say, let me be clear. I don't actually want your money. He doesn't need your money. And we don't want your money either. Now, we do need donations to do ministry at church, but to be clear, we aren't in the money-changing business, right? We're in the heart-changing business, the life-change business. So this series isn't actually about money. It's about your heart. Classic Jesus teaching, Matthew 6, 21, he says it like this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Or in other words, one of the best indicators of what rules your heart is what gets your money. And that's why Jesus talks so much about money. He understands it is a number one chief competitor for our heart. Don't believe me? Okay. True or false? Greed is the most acceptable and least held accountable sin in the United States of America today. True or false? Now, by greed, I mean lots of things. I mean spending too much on luxury items and experiences that we don't need. I mean giving way too little. I mean racking up debt irresponsibly. Or on the flip side, saving so much that it's miserly. Greed is a continuous consumption of things. Greed is an overwhelming desire for more. Greed is constantly raising your standard of living without raising your standard of giving. Greed is burning with envy. And... That's us. The stats are in. The Bureau of Labor Statistics actually reported recently that the average American spends 97% of their income on themselves. And there's no accountability, by the way, in our lives around our money. So there's no change coming. It is so interesting how American Christianity has, uh, has it, its pet peeve sins. We love to wage war on certain, ends, uh, certain sins, but not others, don't we? Sins around human sexuality and gender identity have been a war. Abortion and the family unit, war. Racism and prejudice, it's an absolute war out there. But no one's shouting about greed. The most acceptable and least held accountable sin. And you know why? You know why. Because in our affluent nation, I know and you know that we all just might be guilty of it. So we erase it from the sin book. We erase it from polite conversation. Have you ever noticed how we don't talk about it, by the way? Like how you can't talk about it? You ever noticed? It has been erased from polite conversation. Go tomorrow at work and ask one of your coworkers, hey, what do you make? And how much do you give? You laugh because you would never say such a thing. What an outrage. That's private. Hmm. There are married couples that I know who don't share all their financial information with one another because it's private, it's mine. So my question is this, where is that biblical? The Bible does say that we shouldn't be bragging about how generous we are in order to get the praise and approval of others. But where does it say that you have the right to no accountability and zero transparency around your finances? Spoiler alert, it doesn't. 
And yet I know hundreds of Christians who are in accountability relationships and mentorship groups and small groups, and I can count on my two hands how many times people have told me that they shared with another Christian for the sake of accountability their financial situation. We just don't want people to know. Do we? Now back to Jesus, back to Jesus. He says a lot about money, a lot. And a lot of it isn't nice, especially to the rich and greedy. But I'm not gonna dwell on the not nice stuff today. I'm gonna show you one of his more positive statements about it. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. These are red letters in Acts, interestingly enough, not a lot of them. This is, uh, this is what Jesus says about money here. He says, uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I would suggest to you that this is where Jesus' philosophy of money begins, with generosity, with open hands rather than closed fists. And he promises in this passage that when we're generous, we're blessed. The Greek word here for blessed is uh, the Greek word makarios. It means favored by God, or some translators translate it as happy. Happier are those who give than those who receive. Now, is that true? Come on, is it true? Well, there's all sorts of social science research out there that has proven that Jesus is right. Sociologists Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson actually, uh, they published a pretty compelling bunch of research in a book they wrote. The, the research is a little dated at this point, but I think it's about 2010, 11 when they wrote the book. Um, the book's called The Paradox of Generosity. And in this book, they make the claim that generosity and happiness actually have a causal, not just a correlative, but a causal connection for those of you who know statistics. One causes the other. Generosity causes happiness. They go on to show that generous people are happier. They're physically healthier. They live longer. They have a greater sense of purpose. They have lower levels of depression and anxiety. They're more interested in personal growth. They have better long-term relationships and they feel a greater and stronger presence of love in their life. They go on to summarize their research in this way. They say, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be a result not of spending more money on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data examined here shows this to not simply be a nice idea, but a social scientific Fact. Wow. Strong language. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus was ahead of his time, huh? Now, by the way, this is not what we are told, though, by our hedonistic, consumeristic, greedy culture, is it? Rather, we are told the gospel of mammon. More money equals more happiness. More stuff equals more happiness. Eating out several times a week, taking that nice vacation, living in a large house in a safe neighborhood equals more happiness. But sadly, the empirical evidence proves that this is not reality. Uh, Time Magazine ran an article about the neuroscience research around generosity. We're going to move from social science to neuroscience here. Um, rather than boring you with all the nerd, uh, nerd stuff, let me just summarize for you what this neuroscientist and neuroeconomist said about his research on generosity. 
He said, next time you think that the best way to make yourself feel better is to buy yourself a treat, consider that the opposite is likely true. Hmm. Now, there's this trend right now. Um, it's been around for a while called uh, treat yourself. You heard of the hashtag treat yourself. And you post a picture of you getting a petty with a glass of wine. You post a picture of you with a $50 plate and a $15 cocktail. Treat yourself. I'm just taking care of my, myself, uh, my, my, what, my, my mental health here. A little self-care. And you post a picture on a beach with your feet in it. Because feet accent beach is great. Thanks for posting that, right? But treat yourself. <laughs> now, look, I'm not saying that, that good food or good vacations is necessarily a bad thing. Here's what I am saying. The treat yourself gospel is not reality. It is not the best path to happiness. It is not the best path to mental wholeness. Science is in fact on the side of Jesus. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The challenge though is that today, the world's greatest marketers and craftiest PR experts and wealthiest brands have all teamed up to create an advertising cartel aimed to persuade you that Jesus is wrong. I've never seen a commercial and I don't expect to see one where they say, hey, this is our product, um, but you don't really need it and it won't make you happy long-term. <laughs> don't hold your breath, no, don't hold your breath. Instead, here's what's happening. The advertising cartel seeks to assimilate us to higher and higher standards of living by reclassifying luxuries as necessities. You follow that? That's the strategy. I'll give you just a couple examples here. Um, exhibit A. This is an Instapot. Does anybody remember when an Instapot came out? Oh, I do. And I swear, if people would swear on Jesus like they swore to me on the Instapot, we'd have America evangelized in a week. You need that, Tyler. How did people ever live in the dark ages of crockpots? We don't know. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, as you walk into some of your favorite retailers here over the next few months, you're going to start to see this thing on sale called seasonal decorations. There will be fall colors and gaudy Halloween stuff. Some people probably already got the Christmas stuff out, all right? As this happens, I just want to remind you, dressing your house up in pumpkins is a luxury, not a necessity. Yet this is what the cartel does to you, okay? So uh, the online magazine Good Housekeeping ran an article recently called the 20 best fall decorations on Amazon in 2023. Let me give you the top five here, okay? Just for fun. Uh, number five is the Boho Table Runner. And OMG, it's macrame with white tassels. Girl, you need that. Number four is the solar sunflower lights. And girl, sunflowers are a symbol of autumn and what do you know, your daughter's name is autumn. You need that. Number three is the corduroy throw pillow covers. And if that orange doesn't scream, hallelujah, I don't know what does. You need that. Number two is the fall tea towels. To clarify, men, these are not real towels, they're decorative towels. So don't use them. The wives are clapping. 
My wife has said this to me several times. She's like, stop using the decorative towels. I'm like, where's your real towels? She's like, stop asking questions, use your shirt. All right. But check it, the pumpkin floral combo there, you need that. And of course, there's number one, no surprise here, the velvet fabric pumpkins. For only $17, this comes with a, a set of, of rust, gold, and olive-colored pumpkins, also known as brown, orange, and green by normal people. And, <laughs> and you need that. You need that. Now, comedy bit over. But I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to me. If you go on this website after church and you buy these, you need Jesus for real. Because look at me, you don't, you don't actually need that, right? You don't need to spend hundreds, thousands even on seasonal decor. It's a luxury. Your house will be okay without a cinnamon fall candle. It'll be okay without fake cobwebs in the bushes on Halloween. You can use last year's decorations even, that's okay. And I know I'm picking on the ladies, but guys, smokers, the NFL game day package and what, your, your subscription to craft beers, you don't need that either. You want that, but you don't necessarily need that. So it's interesting, uh, Bishop John Taylor, he is uh, an English bishop, theologian, he actually suggested that Christian families should adopt the slogan, who are you kidding? And then shout it in unison every time a commercial tries to convince us that we need that. Hmm. You ever notice how commercials just like grab your kids, by the way? You ever notice? I'll be sitting there watching a game. They could be totally uninterested, fighting on the other side of the room, like WWE match happening over there. There's blood and screaming. And then the game goes to commercial, liberty, liberty, liberty. And it's <gasps> quiet, pin drop. They're just locked in. So we've got to be careful, right? My point is this, okay? The way of Jesus is good news. It's good news for us. It's better to give than to receive. And the way of our world is fake news. More stuff, more money equals more happiness. And we have to fight to believe that. We've got to fight because the cartel is after us every day on every screen. Now, shifting gears here, for the rest of our time, I actually want to lay out the biblical standard of generosity that we just read in Deuteronomy 26. Uh, Gerhard von Rad, 20th century German theologian, he says that Deuteronomy 26 actually summarizes the eternal principles of generosity that you find from Old Testament to New Testament. They start in the old, they're threaded through the new, they're fulfilled in Jesus, instructed to the church. You can find them all here in the law of Moses in this ancient text. And I was feeling super preachy this week, so I summarized them all up with five P's, five P's. There's the priority of generosity. We'll see that. We'll see the price of generosity, the posture of generosity, the people of generosity, and the power of generosity. And we're going to move fast, note takers, but all of them are important. So start with the first. First, the priority of generosity. Priority of generosity. According to Deuteronomy 26 and the entire biblical canon, the priority is this. Generosity comes first before I save before I spend, I give first. And this is illustrated in Deuteronomy 26 with the principle of the first fruits. You've heard of this? So Deuteronomy 26, one. 
It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, the promised land, when you go there and you've conquered it and settled, put some of the first fruits, the first produce from each crop you harvest into a basket. Bring it to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Now, uh, if you're a farmer, like many people were in this agrarian society, uh, your income's made at the harvest, right? You till, you plant, you water, you tend the crops for an entire year. And then harvest comes, and it's not till then that you know what you're going to make for the year. That's tough. From the looks of our congregation, I doubt that we have a lot of farmers in here. I am not a farmer. I can't even be. So I just found out actually a couple months ago from the doctor that I am highly allergic to bluegrass. And I'm a preacher in Kentucky. We all have our crosses to bear. I kid you not, the doctor came out and he was like, son, listen to me. I don't think you should ever mow the grass again. And I said, can you call my wife and tell her this? Because she ain't going to believe me, right? But I'm not a, far- I'm not a farmer, okay? And, and neither are many of you. But many of us get our income in this way. We are the farmer. We don't know what we're going to make at the beginning of the year. There's investments that have to play out. There's performance-based bonuses. Your job might depend on tips or commission. Maybe you're an artist and you got a gig or get cast in a show. You're the farmer. So how does this income model then impact charitable giving? Well, if you're smart, then what you do is you wait until you get the harvest in the barn. Then you tally up everything you need to live comfortably. Then you give based on the surplus. That's what most of us do. But that's not the principle of the first fruits, is it? Instead, what the farmer's called to do is to go out those first several days, gather the first fruits, bring it in, and give it away. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, what if a storm comes and like wipes out the rest of the crops and all we have is the first fruits and we've already given them away? Or Tyler, what if the first fruits are the best fruits and so there ends up being a disproportionate amount given away than what we keep? Well, those are good questions. And if you're asking questions like those, then you're beginning to understand the faith and trust first fruits giving requires of you. You're not sure how big the harvest is. But God's calling you to a radical faith that prioritizes generosity first. Now, second P. Second P, that's the priority. Next, let's look at the price, the price tag of generosity. Here's what I think the Bible teaches. Price tag of generosity is more than you think. It's more than you think. Oftentimes, it's more than you think you can. For those of you who are looking for like a hard number, like, this is how much you got to give. You're not going to get that from me. You should give 10% or whatever. That's just, what's interesting is this passage doesn't tell us how much the first fruits are. Later, it does say that every third year you should give a tithe to the Levites, foreigners, and the poor among you. But this is every third year. It's interesting. It's from passages like that that people get the principle of the tithe from. And again, if you know me, if you hear me teach, I actually don't believe that that's the biblical prescription. The principle of the tithe is 10% is God, the rest is mine. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. 
uh, so I've got several passages for, for those of you who want to go study this sort of stuff later, but uh, you can throw the slide up here. Um, there's actually multiple tithes asked, different tithes asked in the Old Testament of the people of Israel. In Leviticus 27, one tithe is asked. 10% of all the produce of one's lands and flocks should be given to the Lord annually. Number 18, Numbers 18 explains more about it. Then in Deuteronomy 24, 22 to 29, there's a different tithe that's mandated from uh, the produce and the flocks that you have. It's to be eaten at the sanctuary annually. And then later in Deuteronomy 14, 29, it commands that every third year, you heard this already in Deuteronomy 26, you need to give a tithe to, uh, to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. So Craig Blomberg, a Bible scholar, actually takes all these and he says, if you want to be honest what the Bible says, prorated annually, these add up to about a 23.3% gift that was required of the people. Then on top of that, that doesn't even take into consideration practices that the people of God had like Sabbath years, the Jubilee, gleaning laws, and their culture of hospitality. So you see, you see, biblical generosity was more of an all-encompassing lifestyle that was not comfortable and was not predictable. 10% is very difficult for some people because they're going through it. And for others, 10% is just settling. This is what makes greed easy to ignore, by the way. There's no defined external measurement for it. You know when you commit adultery, that's clear. You know when you lie, that's clear. But with greed, there's no price tag. So what people end up doing is this thing I call comparative complacency, comparative complacency. What's that? Well, since there's no external standard for greed, we just use others as the standard and we compare ourselves to them. And isn't it interesting? We always compare ourselves to somebody richer. Well, I'm not really rich. They're the rich ones. Well, I'm actually pretty generous because look at how much they keep for themselves. It's a self-defense mechanism. And what happens is complacency sets in over time. But it all depends on who you compare to, doesn't it? Ron Sider, a Canadian theologian, wrote the standard book, I believe, on greed. You should read it. I've got the cover here. Okay, only read it if you have a strong stomach, but, because, I mean, he gets after it. The book's called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, Ron died last year, but not before he made a sixth edition of this book. There were uh, over 500,000 copies sold, one sitting on my desk right now. Fascinating, fascinating book. And in it, he attacks comparative complacency. He says, how about this? Stop comparing yourself to your rich neighbors and instead compare yourself to the bottom third of people on the planet. Do you know that 1.2 billion people live on $1.25 per day? They couldn't fathom a conversation about Instapots and decorative tech. It's all about who you compare with. So here's a challenge question for you today, Jesus follower. I know you're looking to grow. What would change if you compared your wealth with the most poor and your giving with the most generous? Compared your wealth to the most poor and your giving to the most generous. Well, I bet that all of a sudden you would realize that the price of generosity is more than you think. And more than you think you can. And that's that uncomfortable place where you're depending on God and his grace is exactly where scripture wants you. Which brings us to the third P, the posture of generosity. Posture of generosity. I think you can sum up the posture that scripture calls us to in one word. Gratitude. You should have an attitude of gratitude when you give. Coming off the previous point, I think this is why there's no external standard. 
There's no clear external standard for greed or generosity because God measures generosity and greed by an internal standard, the disposition of your heart. You can actually give a very, very small gift and yet God look at that and say, that's generous. God look at that and say, do you see what that widow just did with all the rich people around her? She is the one who's truly generous here. You can also give a very, very big gift and it not be generous at all because you're greedy. Comes down to the disposition of the heart. Countless biblical examples here. My favorite is the story of Mary's perfume. Because the contrast here between Mary's heart and Judas's heart is just made clear for us. John 12, I'll read it to you. Uh, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, this is Jesus' last Passover, by the way. He's about to be crucified. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those at the table. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, John gives us a peek at his heart here. He says, the one who was about to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? That's 300 days wage. And the money given to the poor. Again, another peek at his heart. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. So Jesus said back, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Word of the Lord. You, you see the contrast here? It's the contrast here between Mary's heart and Judas's heart. The scripture actually approves of Mary's over-the-top wastefulness and disapproves of Judas's plea for charity. One looks foolish on the outside. One looks generous and righteous on the outside. But one's foolishness is actually generous and one's righteousness is actually greed. How? Why? Because God sees the heart. It's the disposition of the heart that truly matters. Now, Deuteronomy 26 actually builds on this. I want you to notice, after the gift is given in Deuteronomy 26, notice the ritual that the people then went through. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, it says, after giving your gift, as you're laying your offering to, before the, the altar, it says, you must then say this in the presence of the Lord your God. My ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived, few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. And then, watch it, they're going to sing, to pray the story. Recall, remember, the story of their redemption here. Watch. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our cry. He saw our hardship, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a powerful arm, with overwhelming terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place. He gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And now, O oh Lord, here I am. I've brought you the first portion of the harvest you have given to me from the ground. Then the text says, afterwards you may then go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given to you. You see how this works? 
This is so beautiful. The Israelites had a ritual where as they gave their offering to the priest at the temple, they recalled the story of how God rescued and redeemed them from slavery. God, you brought us out. God, once we had nothing. God, there was an enemy oppressing and humiliating us. But God, with your strong hand, you worked a miracle in my life. With your strong hand, you brought me out of slavery into the promised land. God, without you, without that, without your generosity, not only would I be enslaved still, but I might not even be alive. So all I am is yours. All I have is yours. I give out of this place of gratitude. Beautiful. What a beautiful ritual to keep our hearts right. It made me think, maybe something we should do is just have somebody share a testimony of freedom every week we collect the offering. Maybe we should sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me Every Time We Give. Because it keeps our attitude in a place of gratitude. That's the posture that God wants it wants from us. Which brings us to the fourth P, the people of generosity. This one's quick. I'm keeping, look at this, I'm, I'm on fire today. I'm keeping the P's here. <laughs> Seven P's. Here's the people. The priest and the poor. Priest and the poor. Those are the people. Those are the targets for our generosity. I made a little Bible slide here of Deuteronomy 26 where it highlights the different places where the offerings are laid before the priest or set aside for, for the foreigners, the Levites, the poor. And to put it simple, I, I believe you should be giving to your church and to the least. That's where God gets his mission done in the world today when people give to this. And, and you know, bonus points if your church supports the poor, but if there's a nonprofit that you want to support that supports the poor in kingdom ways, go for it. If there's a missionary that, that's not a part of our, go for it. If there's just a day where you're called to support somebody in your neighborhood, to support somebody in your family, go for it. That's kingdom work too. It's all kingdom work, but... But again, this is where Jesus gets his work done today through us when we're generous with the priests, with the poor. That's why we have this ministry fair today. But you got to go out there afterwards. We are a church that leverages lots of of your monies to to go out into the community. And you're going to get to meet lots of different amazing people and amazing organizations that are transforming the Ville. Do not leave fast today. Go check out what's going on in our city. Go check out what Love the Ville is about. Go get involved. Last, final P. That brings us to our last point here, the power of generosity. Man, we need power to keep this standard. Now, before, before I close with this and we take communion, let me summarize the biblical standard that we've seen to this point because this will help us wrap our mind around the power of generosity. Here's the standard summarized in, in street talk layman's terms before I spend more than I should or save more than I need I give more than I can to the work of the priest and to the care of the poor with an attitude of gratitude and pause right there let me just say that is a hard standard that's hard that's why you need power a power beyond yourself if you're going to do it because you can't accomplish this by just trying harder you can't accomplish this by just white knuckling so where do we get the power to keep the standard well we get the power from jesus last line in the standard jesus is why jesus is where i actually believe the more you grow in appreciation of what jesus has done unto you the more power and motivation you'll have to do unto others i believe that 
That's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Jesus didn't just give more than he could, by the way. He gave everything that he had. Jesus' generosity for you is the power source. Are you plugged in? Most places that have to raise funds, they, they raise them by appealing to people's hearts on an emotional, you know, instantaneous level. And that helps, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like, show a picture of a sad puppy and bring Sarah McLaughlin out. Do her thing. In the arms of the angel. And then, like, people are giving. I get it. I get it. And, and that's fine. That's fine. But that's a momentary emotion level appeal to giving. Deep, heart-altering generosity requires more than appeal to the heart. It requires a transformation of the heart. And that's the work of Jesus. Jesus once told a parable about a creditor that had two guys who owed him money. The first guy owed him 16 months wages. The next guy owed him two months wages. Story goes that neither could pay it back. And so, in an incredulous act of grace, the creditor actually, you remember, forgives them both. Forgives the debts of both of them. Now, after Jesus tells this story, he asks a very interesting question, Luke 7, 42. He says, who you suppose loved him more after that? Who you suppose, the 16-month guy or the two-month guy? To which everyone's like, it's obvious. The guy who owed him more loved him more. And so Jesus summarizes his teaching in this way, verse 47. He says, well, a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. And on the flip, a person who is forgiven much shows a lot of love. You see? So I wonder, how much have you been forgiven? Hmm. If you're like me, the answer is a lot. More than I deserve, more than I'll share, and more than I'll probably ever know. How deep of an appreciation do you have for that? How deep of an appreciation do you have for your brokenness and Jesus' benevolence? That question is the key to unlocking generosity, power, real true power in your life. If you want to become more generous and less greedy, don't just look at the physically poor child and listen to Sarah, okay? Look at your spiritually impoverished heart and remind yourself of God's grace. The fuel of Christian generosity is an appreciation of God's grace. And honestly, there's two ways to grow in this appreciation. Way number one is you just appreciate how glorious and beautiful Jesus is for doing what he did. You have a higher and higher view of Jesus. And the other way is you just realize how low you are, how low he had to stoop. You understand how sinful and wicked you've been. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I don't just owe 16 months, I owe 16 years, I owe 16 lifetimes. I don't got enough days left to pay it all back, personally. Y'all think I got it together because I'm a preacher. <laughs> if you only knew me. My, Mr. Love the Ville, that's t- my good works aren't even that good. You know that, right? Like a lot of times, you may be like me, I do good works in order to be admired by others or because they make me feel good. Not because I love God or love others. So not only do I have to repent of my bad works, I got to repent of my good works too. And I keep racking up the debt daily. You feel the same? Is it similar for you? Some of you are here today and and you're not a very good husband. 
Some of you are here today and you are addicted. Some of you are here today and and you just hate yourself. You've betrayed, you've lied, you've made your bed, and now you're lying in it. Others of you are here today and you got a past. Ooh, if people knew what you did, if we could run the tape on that season of your life, you'd be canceled and deplatformed in about five seconds. So here's the beauty of God's grace today. For you and for me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, But God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, dead, man, he gave us life. When he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. I love verse eight. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Praise God for his grace. And I'll tell you, when we begin to appreciate that, when we begin to appreciate the beauty and glory of God's grace and Jesus' love and also the ugliness and malignancy of our own sin, how could we not say thank you? How could we not give? How could we not share? This is the power of the gospel, and Jesus is why. And this is what we celebrate each Sunday when we take communion. We lament the debt we cannot pay on our own, but we celebrate the creditor who paid it all for you and for me. I always thought it was appropriate when I was a kid that we would do offering right after communion because your mind and your heart is in the right place. So pull out the emblems, if you will. As you do, let's put the standard back up there on the screen. I want you to reflect on this standard. Appreciate Jesus, and then Jason will come and lead us in communion.